1: Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Weinbanks, Joyce Vance, Barb McQuaid, and me, Kimberly Atkins-Store. Today, we'll update you on the Texas abortion law, we'll discuss the fallout from the Facebook whistleblower, and we'll talk about Attorney General Merrick Garland asking the FBI to take on the threats against school officials. And as always, we'll be looking forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But before we get to the show, we have such exciting news, you guys. Can you believe it? We're coming out with merch, sisters-in-law I am merch, thrilled. you guys. Aren't you so excited? Now you cannot just
2: <laughs> listen to us. You can wear us. Yeah.
3: <laughs> but seriously, I am excited. I mean, I can't wait to get one of the hoodies. And, and I really want a water bottle too. What are you guys? I mean, look at it. We've got pictures. I'm sorry that our listeners can't see them. But actually, you can if you go to politicon.com slash merch, you too can see what we're talking about. I
0: can't wait for the pin, which I'm sure surprises no one who's listening to this show. It is Fabulous. And I will be wearing it a lot. (laughs) Maybe even on top of the
2: Sisters-in-Law hoodie. Well, one of the things I like best about our our merch is that it is made with sustainable uh, materials, that um, we are using environmentally conscious chemicals and inks and filtration systems. So that was something that was very important to us as we selected people to make the Sisters-in-Law merch. It really
3: is a big deal because all of our production and web store packaging is upcycled, compostable, and/ or sustainable to reduce waste and plastic usage. that's a big deal to me and something we were very
1: conscious of yeah, and we're working with you know small boutiques and and radical apparel brands um, that are pushing the industry forward and they're actually exceeding industry certifications for sustainability and ethical practices. That's really important to us. But also, it's all really cute. Like, I can't wait to get a sticker. I like to put a sticker on my laptop because I don't want to be, you know, a poster for a certain tech company. Um, Also, the water bottle. I I've learned now to keep a water bottle with me at all time. It's really important to me to reduce my plastic usage. And this one, the colors, um, it's in this, this bright pink lettering that I really like and blue bottle. It's really stylish too. I love it. And the tea are going to be a must wear for all of our listeners. I hope they're going to be
0: as excited about this as we are. And they're ready for pre-ordering right now. So please everyone, Follow us through uh, the, the website and through the show notes and get your orders. So get them for the holidays and think of them for gifts for the holidays.
1: All of your friends are going to love them. I know my fans have asked for the, p- it's coming, it's coming. So get your holiday shopping done. Just go to politicon.com slash merch. That's politicon.com slash merch. And now we're going to get to the meat of our show, Barb. Take us uh, through this Texas abortion law and what the latest is.
2: Yeah, so we had news. You know, we've been following this story, Kim, since it began several months ago, really, with the passage of the law and the first lawsuit. Um, but there's an update this week in that restrictive abortion law. As you recall, SB 8 prohibits most abortions after six weeks in clear conflict with Roe versus Wade. And there was the first lawsuit filed by an advocacy group that's now kind of on the back burner after the Supreme Court declined to issue a stay last month. We've talked about that before, but there's another lawsuit challenging SB8. This is the one filed by the Department of Justice in September, and this is the one that was in the news this week. And Joyce, can you tell us about that one? What happened um, and about the legal opinion that was issued this week?
3: Sure. So we've all been following this closely, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will know that a district judge in Texas became the first member of the judiciary to call out the state of Texas for this disingenuous scam of a law that it had passed, a law that deprived people of abortion rights, while claiming that the state of Texas wasn't responsible for enforcing the law, so its constitutionality couldn't be tested in courts. Well, Now a district judge has said not so fast, Texas. And, of course, this isn't litigation over the merits of the law yet. This is not about whether or not SB-8 is constitutional. This is a preliminary procedural process. Lawyers call this a preliminary injunction, which is an early motion that's been made to take up the issue of whether the law should be blocked from going into effect, while litigation over the merits of the law, whether it's actually constitutional, is ongoing. And that litigation can take a, a long time, so you can understand why it can be important. Important to block a law from going into effect if it's going to deprive people of their rights for a lengthy period of time.
2: I was just going to say I appreciated this opinion. And Robert Pittman is the judge here. You and I both know him. He was the U.S. attorney. For um, West Texas during the Obama administration. And what I appreciate is, you know, he wrote this 113 page opinion where he detailed a, a lot of facts that I think could make it more difficult for courts to just, you know, throw up their hands and say, we need a more developed factual record here. So can you tell us about that, about the detail with which he wrote?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the interesting feature of this case. Pittman had a a similar motion in in the earlier case that Barb mentioned, but the Fifth Circuit stripped his jurisdiction to consider it with an administrative stay. And so this 113-page order suggests to me that he wasn't very happy about what they did to him in the earlier case. This is 113 pages of the best, most well-reasoned thought process I've really ever read from a, a federal judge in any case. Usually when you have an order that's this long, there's a little bit of, um, let's just say, extra verbiage that gets included. But the writing in this case is tight. And Pittman hits all of the key issues with an analysis of the law and the facts that creates a very strong record for other courts that will look over his order. The Fifth Circuit or the Supreme Court, they might still reverse him, but he has preemptively pointed out the error that they will fall into if they do that. So it would not be surprising to me if the courts down the road said, you know, now that we have a record from the court below, we've decided to block the law after all. It's really hard for them to have any different sort of an- analysis without damaging public confidence that there isn't a separate set of rules for abortion. Here, here's the bottom line. It's routine in the rare cases where constitutional rights are violated by a law passed by a state legislature, uh, That There will be an injunction during the litigation. That's, That's just routine. And what happened in the earlier case is the exception, not the rule. So Pittman's ruling should be unremarkable. It's only remarkable because of the contortions that the Fifth Circuit and the Supreme Court went through to permit Texas's SB8 to go into effect. Pittman actually enjoined the Texas judiciary, from the clerks of court to the judges, from participating in these private vigilante lawsuits that SB 8 authorizes. And he also told Texas that they have to make everyone in the court system aware of the ruling. They've got to send his order to all of their judges and and to staff folks, and they have to prominently publish notice of it on every public-facing court website in, in the entire state system. So this is unusual, but Judge Pittman explains that the case is exceptional, and he used language from the United States complaint to explain why it's exceptional. He said it's because the United States sought to enjoin the state in this case, not just because the United States believed that SB-8 violated the constitutional rights of Texas citizens and was causing widespread significant injury, but also because of the allegation that Texas designed SB-8 to preclude the ability of those whose rights are being violated from vindicating their rights. That's what's really driving this. It's Texas, Texas's effort to avoid judicial review. Judge Pittman declined to stay his ruling while it was appealed by the state of Texas, and he did that given what he called the aggressive way that Texas has deprived its citizens of their rights. He said this court will not sanction one more day of this offensive deprivation of such an important right. This is a big win for the Justice Department. Yeah, and
2: I really appreciated um, the, the detail with which Judge Pittman wrote and the completely unfiltered language, which was, you know, it was strong, it was sharp, and it, it's deserved in this case, both on the merits, you know, the slides in the face of 40 years of precedent in Roe versus Wade, but also on the process, this sinister way that they're trying to avoid judicial review by create, you know, structuring it the way they did. Um, Kim, let me turn to you. Joyce was giving us a little bit of a uh, uh, the way Pittman tried to wrote, write this to maybe make it a little stronger on appeal, but Should we expect any different um, behavior by the appellate courts this time around? Or will the Fifth Circuit just reverse, uh, you know, Pittman's order and reinstate all these restrictions while we await the outcome of the lawsuit? Will this go to the Supreme Court and we've got the same 6-3 or maybe 5-4 vote that we saw before? Can we expect anything to be different?
1: Yeah. Now, it's very likely that the Fifth Circuit, which is known to be one of the most, if not the most conservative federal appellate court in the country could take the same approach, as could the U.S. Supreme Court in this case. But the way that Judge Pittman, as Joyce laid out, wrote this opinion makes it really difficult, at least for them to do it in the exact same way. Um, I I will pick up exactly where Joyce left off and where Texas requested that the court uh, not block the enf- enforcement of this law as it appeals, and Judge Pittman just wasn't having it. He was saying the state forfeited uh, the right to any such a com- uh, accommodation by pursuing, pursuing an unprecedented and aggressive scheme to deprive its citizens of a significant and well-established constitutional right. He's really laying it out here. And you're right. This is a preliminary injunction. This is not about the constitutionality of the law, but one of the standards is likelihood of success in order to win at the preliminary phase. And he's really digging into that to make a point about the constitutionality. He said, from the moment SBA went into effect, SB8 went into effect, women have been unlawfully prevented from exercising control over their lives in ways that are protected by the constitution. So what can't happen here is the Fifth Circuit can't just rubber stamp it without making it clear exactly why they're doing that. What it also makes it as it moves its way up More difficult for the U.S. Supreme Court on its shadow docket, which we've talked about before, to again issue a one or two paragraph order that doesn't explain its reasoning. Because one of the things that happens at the preliminary stage is that judges often, very usually, will will want to preserve the status quo as the case moves forward up the line. At the beginning, this law was allowed to, to take effect. So the status quo was the law into it, uh, taking effect. Now the law has been stopped. So it's going to be a lot tougher to say, all right, well, let's, let's let it go back into effect, even as we're waiting for this to, to finish. So I, My hope is at least that for now it will remain stayed as it makes its way up. But again the 5th circuit the 5th circuit and the supreme court can do what they want and they are a conservative courts so we'll have to see. Kim,
3: let me ask you this as a court. Can I just underline can can I jump in and underline something that Kim said that I think is so smart and so important? Because when we look at this go up through the courts, you know, the 5th circuit can't reverse Roe versus Wade. That's not how this works. The lower courts are obligated to follow existing supreme court law. So for the 5th circuit to jump in here and reverse Judge Pittman that that would be really remarkable, and, and I think we're going to have an interesting time watching
2: it happen. Kim is dead on the line here. I, I want to ask you, oh, any of you, I guess, but Kim, I, you, you know, as a, as a court watcher, as a former uh, reporter for the Supreme Court, what, I'm interested in your thoughts about how um, the court's defense of its legitimacy recently. You know, we've seen uh, Alito and Breyer and Barrett out there saying, we're not partisan hacks, really. I mean it. Really, really. Um do you think that that could have any impact on what they do with this case? Because I think their refusal to lift the stay in September was a real blow to their legitimacy and their integrity. Do you think that, you know, a month later, seeing the outcome and the reaction to that, they might be inclined to do something different this time around?
1: I think possibly. I think at the end of the day, their vote, when. The ultimate issue of whether to reverse Roe v. Wade in the end won't be moved by this. But I certainly think the ways that they do things, particularly when it comes to the shadow docket. I mean, we've already seen people after talking about the lack of transparency in the way that they're giving these speeches, right, where they're talking about this stuff and not letting reporters in. They started live streaming it. They started making it more available. Clearly, the comments, particularly by Justice Alito, I mean, he seemed really uh, miffed at the media coverage of the shadow docket. Clearly, he's been reading it and clearly it's been landing. So I think what you're going to see is not a one- paragraph uh-huh. order when this makes it up. I think you're going to see them have to at least explain themselves a yeah. little bit more.
2: So, and that's, and that's a good outcome, if nothing else. Well, Jill, let me ask you, um, as a practical matter, we've got this injunction now issued by Judge Pittman for as long as it lasts. Does that allow abortion providers to reopen their doors? Or do you think they'll still fear the possibility of reversal of this decision and exposure to civil liability? You know, it, it can be a lawsuit could be filed after the fact. So, do you think this changes anything in Texas at the moment?
0: I'm so glad you asked that question, because despite scathing opinion, and it is scathing, and they took a second lawsuit, this one from the Department of Justice at this point, practically because of the million way in which they drafted the law, it specifically accounts for the possibility of there being an injunction and says that if an abortion is performed during the injunction and then the injunction is lifted, you can still be prosecuted or it's not a prosecution because it's not criminal. You can still be sued under this law for anything you did during the enjoined period once it's lifted. So what has happened practically in Texas is that there are some uh, providers who have started to uh, provide abortions again and are ignoring the possibility that they could face charges later on once the law is, if it is, ultimately upheld and the injunction overturned. But um, there are many who are not doing it. And there are still horrible stories that you can listen to on any network about young girls who have been raped or uh, the victims of family abuse, um or who are just pregnant for other reasons and have had to flee the state to seek an abortion. Uh, Illinois is considering, my home state, I'm proud to say, is considering becoming basically a sanctuary city, welcoming people who need to have reproductive health care provided. Um, So the answer practically is it may provide a temporary reprieve, but it's not going to allow return to full services under the way the law is drafted. It's just one more thing in how devious the state was in spill.
2: Yeah. So, you know, where do we go from here? What can we expect next? What do you think, Joyce? Well, I'm
3: not optimistic about the outcome of the litigation in the Supreme Court, and we've talked a little bit about the fact that there is legislation in Congress introduced by Congresswoman Judy Chu from California that would actually enshrine Roe v.ersus Wade in the law. That's obviously a heavy lift in the Senate. But there is, if there's a silver lining in all of this, it's watching what Jill's talking about, the incredible amount of people who are being forced to leave Texas in order to enforce their constitutional rights. And, you know, when Congress writes new legislation, it's got to have a jurisdictional hook. Usually in a case like this, there has to be an impact on interstate commerce in order for the law to be constitutional. Well, damn it, if there was any doubt about that, it's abundantly clear that there's an impact on interstate commerce here. And so Texas, uh, if it's done nothing else, has given Congress the opportunity and the obligation to act.
2: Yeah, you know, I was with a group today called the uh, Women's Rights Salon in Ann Arbor, a group of women who get together monthly to talk about issues of the day. And, you know, one of the things we talked about is just how um, the abortion wars is really just part of the culture wars designed to stir up the base and make it a political issue. So uh, the majority of voters in Texas favor abortion rights. So we will stay tuned and see how this one comes out. Signing off from down here in Gilead. I have to, to point
3: out how big the rally
0: in Texas was on Saturday for um, this issue. It was a major turnout. And I think that that shows, and at least in Illinois, there were so many young women there, that this is now an issue that is of concern and could turn out the demo base. So it could end up bad.
2: All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there till next time. So, you know, my favorite late-night snack go-to choice is Magic Spoon. How about you, Jill? Have you been still enjoying your Magic Spoon cereal? I
0: love it. And it's not cereal. It's Magic Spoon. And <laughs> we need to make that clear because it's a protein source, which I find really important for breakfast. I like protein. And Magic Spoon is a tasty way of getting it. Totally love all the flavors. I'm still the Jelly Donut which was a special flavor, but I still love the fruity and the frosted, all delicious. And what about you, Joyce?
3: Love it. Absolutely. You know, we're a cereal family. It's my husband's default meal. Um, So even though it's technically not cereal, it serves that purpose in our house.
1: What about you, Kim? I totally love it. My favorite is uh, mixing the peanut butter with the cocoa, That's really delicious. It's like, you know, a a peanut butter cup uh, in your in your bowl. Um, I also am looking forward to trying the maple waffle and the cookies and cream. Um, It's just great, as Barb said, for a snack. It's great in the morning. I put it over yogurt. It's just a really healthy and filling treat or meal to start your day.
2: Well, let me tell you people, Magic Spoon has zero grams of sugar. 13 to 14 grams of protein, 4 net grams of carbs, and is only 140 calories a serving. It's keto-friendly, it's gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. You can build your own box and customize it with Magic Spoon's delicious cocoa and peanut butter the way Kim likes to. You can uh, get the fruity like Jill or the frosted, the blueberry, the cinnamon flavors you can mix and match. Is that all, Jill?
0: That's not all. Magic Spoon is bringing back two fan favorite flavors: Cookies and Cream and Maple Waffle, permanently. They're delicious, indulgent, and healthy. You've got to try them. Go to magicspoon.com/sister to grab a custom bundle of cereal and try it today. Be sure to use our promo code SISTER at checkout to save $5 off your order.
2: Magic Spoon is so confident in their product that it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com sister and use the code sister to save $5 off.
0: Facebook whistleblower Frances Hagen came forward this week, first in a 60-minute interview where she detailed the company's uh, problems that she had filed a complaint with the SEC about, a clever move that let her evade any nondisclosure agreement and that set the stage for her subsequent testimony before a Senate subcommittee. Let's dig in to understand what she said about Facebook and why she believes it endangers democracy and young girls at the same time. Barb, what did she say and what was the gist of all of her claims?
2: Well, Jill, as you mentioned, it's kind of a genius way of structuring this. She, she filed this whistleblower complaint with the SEC—that's the Securities Exchange Commission—saying that Facebook had made material false statements and omissions in the filings that it has to file with the SEC. You know, this—it's a—it's a publicly traded company, and publicly traded companies have to. Uh, make representations about uh, their their work and their product, and she detailed a number of things that are false in uh, statements that Facebook has made. Um, and among the topics that she said they are uh, concealing data uh, was that Facebook is used prevalently for human trafficking, and that Facebook was aware of this, and that is contrary to the statements it says about how it you know builds safe and healthy communities. Um, She talked about how Facebook was promoting disinformation and violent extremism by sending people to the pages that have those kinds of comments on them, that it was promoting hate speech, uh, that it had this negative effect on health, its Instagram component. You know, Instagram is owned by Facebook. It's a different platform. But that's the one that's very popular with young people and shows mostly photos, and that they found that the effect on the health of young girls – was very detrimental when girls were on Instagram. It had an increased incidence of suicide, uh, thoughts of self-harm, eating disorders, and uh, body image. And what's super interesting, I think, about what she said is, um, you've all been looking in the wrong place for so long when you've been investigating Facebook and other social media companies. You've been looking at the content, and what you should instead be looking at is the algorithms. She's a data scientist, and she says it is these algorithms that push people into these certain that topics and certain groups and certain rooms, what and she it is said. that and, where companies um, like Facebook also,
0: are really manipulating um, the public. came forward because her division integrity team had just been disbanded, and she felt that it would allow the platform to be used to help organize the January 6th riot on Capitol Hill. And so, Joyce, of course, Facebook shot back. They were making ad hominem attacks on her and defending their actions and saying that she had painted a false picture of the company. What do you think of that?
3: Well, of course, uh, Zuckerberg, took to Facebook to try and respond to the allegations that she raised. I don't think that the SEC will accept that, right? He might have a little bit more obligation to respond um, actually formally and in writing and in length. But his main argument this early on is that she was taking Facebook's research on its impact on children out of context. He had sort of pulled that piece out and accused her, as you said, Jill, of painting a false picture of the company. I think it's unlikely that this works. You know, early on, what he needs to do is turn the tide of public opinion back in favor of the company. But there's too much other information out there that suggests that Facebook has a history of doctoring and selectively releasing its data to the public for this to have much success. Uh, Earlier this year, Facebook released data about the most viewed information on its platform— and it painted a really rosy picture of posts about pets and family, suggesting that they predominated. But then it came to light that Facebook had manipulated the data range, uh, the date range rather, on the data that they included. And their defense in that case, when the research eventually leaked to the Times, they came clean and they said this, we're guilty of cleaning up our house a bit before we invited company, was the defense that a Facebook spokesperson offered. And that Flew at that point in time, it was enough to keep them out of trouble. And this is the sort of response that they typically raise. So Zuckerberg's acting really in in keeping with what the company has always done. Here, though, this is a bridge too far. This is a lot of public attention being paid to very specific allegations. And it's going to take a more specific response from the company. I wonder if what we won't see is reopening of what happened in the 2016 election, you know, where where he ended up being a keynote speaker just after the 2016 election. At an event held by a company called Teconomy in New York City, he was the keynote speaker. It was actually an interview, not a speech, but in the course of that interview, he denied that Facebook bore any responsibility for the proliferation of information that was favorable to Trump, but that was in fact false on the platform. He denied that the algorithm had contributed in any way to the results in the 2016 election. And we now know that there's a lot more to the story than what he acknowledged in 2016. That rising trend with knowledge of what's happened with Facebook in the last five years Makes me think that given the history here, the real question is going to be less about whether they can defend successfully against these allegations, because they can't, but whether Congress is prepared to do anything about the allegations. So that takes me to the next question for Kim, um, because as you said,
0: this is not a good defense, and I'm sure that all of you are seeing the same thing I am on Twitter, which is that she was the one that people believed not Zuckerberg. Um, And she even said that the Facebook problems are solvable. There is a way to a safer, free speech-respecting social media, but only if Congress takes action. So, so far, Congress and the FTC have tried and failed to hold Facebook accountable. The only consequences so far have been that Facebook sort of put the brakes on plans for Instagram for kids. Kim, how else can they be held accountable. What can Congress do?
1: Yeah, and just based on what we heard um, uh, from Hagen, it, it, you know the fact that Facebook is putting the brakes on an Instagram that's directed toward kids seems like the very least they could do now, right? Um, but you're absolutely right. What has happened in this area, as in other areas, is that the law and regulations have just failed to keep up with the rapid rise and spread of social media. So what you've had in the presence of bad behavior, and it's not just Facebook, um, it's Twitter, it's other organizations that sort of very deftly uh, use loopholes in the law in order to maximize their profit profitability without um, being as accountable as they need to be. And so what you see are agencies using antiquated laws or laws that aren't meant for this situation to try to hold them accountable. So what the FTC primarily did was sue Facebook on antitrust violations. Now, antitrust laws were created and developed to hold folks like Standard Oil accountable for not holding a monopoly on utilities, it doesn't really work with social media, but that's really the best tool that it had. It tried to sue them, and the lawsuit was thrown out. So <laughs> Congress really needs to create a new regulatory scheme. And I see Barb wants to say
2: something. Yes. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Kim. I'm, I'm uh, chiming in, but you know what it reminds me of? I'm sure you've seen the clips of the hearings before Congress when they get like Mark Zuckerberg there or Jack Dorsey from Twitter there, and they're asking questions, and the Members of Congress are just so befuddled. They don't understand any of us. <laughs> yes. It reminds me of you know those progressive ads with that guy, Dr. Rick. Don't become your parents. Yes. And they're like, am I, am I map questing right now? Am I? You know, they, they don't understand, understand anything works. about yes. technology. And I think that's a real problem. You know, so many of our members of Congress, um, you know, grew up in a time that was sort of pre digital world, and I think they need tech experts on staff. You know, beyond just testifying witnesses, but staffers to come kind of help explain this stuff to them. Yeah. Because I agree with you, they're trying to apply these laws that are obsolete, you know, that, that were used for standard oil, and trying to figure out how to put a square peg into a round hole. And so we absolutely need changes in the laws. I don't know what they are, but they need somebody who can be the the tech
1: translator for lawmakers. Right. And you're absolutely right. And that's exactly what Frances Hoggins said. She said, You need folks like me on an independent oversight board where these people who cycle out of these uh, social media companies have a place to land once they leave and they can be at the table to let you know and, and, and have a real understanding of exactly what is necessary. We know that Facebook knows how to change their uh, algorithms so that this sort of dangerous content is not marketed to children. We know that Facebook knows how to change its algorithm to make it more difficult for insurrectionists to gather and plan an insurrection. But they're not doing it because they don't have to, and it's less profitable if they do. So if you have that oversight board with the people with that expertise she said, that would go a long way. So hopefully Congress listens to her. I hope so. That would be an amazing outcome. The other thing that's
0: come out of this that I found interesting was that some talk about Democrats could actually use Facebook for their own good. So, for example, they could, ahead of the 2022 elections, um, flood voters' Facebook feeds with factual, positive news articles about the president's Build Back Better agenda and the candidates who are actually running. What do you guys think of that idea?
3: I think that just underlines the problems with the platform, to be honest. I mean, I understand the notion it exists. We should make use of it and try to spread the truth. But the problem is it's not up to Democrats to fix Facebook's problems, and I'm not sure that they could be fully successful even if they launched a campaign like that. The real issue here, as, as Barb and Kim point out, is that we are long overdue to have a regulating authority for social media. We have regulating authorities for other, you know, utilities, which is essentially what Zuckerberg has repeatedly referred to Facebook as. We need to take responsibility in a corporate management sense for these utilities that have been permitted to go on with no sort of regulation for
2: far too long. Yeah, I saw, it um, might have been our friend Asher Angapa Joyce, comparing Facebook, uh, not, not only to a utility, which I think is a great example, you know, this is like... Um, the broadcast uh, b- bands and uh, electricity and water, but comparing it to other addictive products like tobacco yes. and alcohol that is harmful to kids, um, you know, what industry would be allowed to go unregulated in that way? So um, I think uh, regardless of which party is using it, it's, it's a tool and it should be regulated so that we can ensure that it's, you know, it's, it's accurate information that's being shared there.
1: I think that's the perfect way to think about this, Barb. I thought about the Consumer Product Safety Board, which, you know, if you have a crib that tends to collapse, the federal government will come in and shut down production of that thing. If you have this platform that is promoting anorexia and other really serious things that are harming children, we need the equivalent of that to step in when that happens.
3: Well, Kim, here we are with Barb again, who's not going to want to talk about bras, not even third love bras:
2: Pass: <laughs> You know that's what uh, the students say when they don't want to talk in class.
1: Well, I, I get it. Barb doesn't want to talk about bras. I don't usually talk about it, but third love is so comfortable. That's what I love about it. I can put a bra on and then I don't have to think about it or talk about it or do anything because the fit is so great. And isn't that the objective, Jill? It certainly is. And you are totally
0: correct in how wonderful they are. They provide support all day without ever feeling like you're constricted. Uh, they're great for exercise, and they're great for just wearing every day under your dress clothes. I really, really enjoy them, and I I know that Joyce is loving them too, right?
3: You know, I really am a fan. For me, the test is when I get home from a, a ten or a twelve-hour day because I have a long commute when I teach in Tuscaloosa, and. Typically, the first thing I would do when I walked in the door was get my bra off, right? Because it was uncomfortable at that point in the day. With third love, I don't have to do that. It's comfortable all day long. And I... I really do appreciate that. I also appreciate that Third Love creates really high quality underwear sleep and lounge wear with cup sizes that range from double A to I, including exclusive half cups and lounge and sleepwear too in sizes uh, extra small to 3x, so everybody can get ready to feel good if you don 't love it. exchanges and returns are free. Third love gives gently used return bras to women in need, donating over forty million bras so far. So take the easy fitting room quiz, and Third Love does the rest, focusing your fit on size, shape, current issues, and your personal style to deliver underwear that's perfect for you. They
1: even have stylists on standby to help. Third Love obsesses over each stitch, so you'll always love how it feels, how it looks, and how it wears. While trends come and go, Third Love stays true to their motto, If we do comfort, you do you. And Third Love has helped over 18 million women find their true bra size. I love Third Love's washable silk PJs with a soft like a peach touch. It's machine washable luxury. Feeling is believing. Upgrade to everyday pieces that love your body as much as you do. Right now, you can get 20% off your first order at thirdlove.com slash sistersinlaw. That's 20% off at thirdlove.com slash sistersinlaw.
3: Everywhere you look on social media these days, as well as on television, there's video of another school board meeting with the anti-vax, COVID is a hoax crowd, harassing, intimidating, and threatening violence against elected school board officials. And, And those folks can be scary and even violent. So this week, Attorney General Merrick Garland decided it was finally time to take action. And let's start there. Kim, what did the Attorney General do on this issue?
1: Yeah. And I want to underscore that, yes, while the majority of the unrest that we have seen in these school board meetings and directed at teachers and administrators has been over things like masking policies for students who are too young to be vaccinated people, you know, um, it's also part of this, I I call it CRT hysteria, this idea that um, there are a lot of parents who honestly believe that teachers are teaching uh, white children to be ashamed of being white when actually what teachers are teaching is history. Um, But there is hysteria over that too. And it's not just in, you know, we talk a lot about the the Northern Southern divide. This is happening in places like Massachusetts and Connecticut and other places. So it's become a real problem. And Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, has taken what I think is a really interesting step in order to establish the Department of Justice stance on this happening. And what he did was direct the FBI to work with each U.S. attorney to convene meetings with federal, state, local, tribal, and territorial leaders in each federal district within the next 30 days. And he wants them to have discussions about strategies for addressing threats against school administrators. And if um, the investigations find that crimes have been committed because it is, in some cases, a federal crime to to threaten uh, teachers and administrators in the way that they have, that they can bring these charges. And I think it's unusual, and I want to hear more from the three of y'all since you have far more federal criminal experience um, than I do. This is normally not something that you see, but it certainly seems to be laying a marker down to say, hey, the Department of Justice is putting everyone on notice that this kind of behavior is unacceptable, it's unsafe, it does not support our schools, and where we can, we're going to step in. Yeah,
3: I think that's right, Kim. You know, this is the sort of priority setting by an attorney general that puts down a real marker. He's just told uh, all of his 93 United States attorneys nationwide to get off the stick and meet with their state and local partners. Barb, we had that happen when we were U.S. attorneys, when there were concerns about violent crime, and we were directed to meet with all of our state and local partners. I don't know about you, but I had 30 plus counties so it was a real effort for me to put my team together and go on a roadshow to do these meetings and we did it we did it promptly so how is it going to actually play out in this case what sort of statutory authority does doj have in this area and what will they accomplish with their statutory authority and perhaps more importantly beyond their statutory authority
2: Yeah, you know, you probably saw this too, Joyce, that uh, Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, had uh, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco before him uh, at a congressional hearing the other day and was chewing her out and so clearly grandstanding for Fox News and the local TV, six o'clock news at home by saying this is all about, uh, you know, intimidating parents and preventing them from uh, criticizing their school boards and exercising their First Amendment rights. And she, I, I give her a lot of credit for not taking the bait. She was cool as a cucumber and just said, uh, no, Senator, if you read the memo, what it says is about preventing violence. So she kept coming back to that. And you're right. We've done this before. He kept saying, point me to one example where you've ever and then, you know, he got so specific that, of course, as he well knew, there's no such example that exists in the world. So that's how he plays tricks. Uh, In place to the cameras. Um, But there are a couple of things. One is for statutory authority, um, federal prosecutors can prosecute threats when they are in interstate commerce which is anytime there's a phone call or anytime the internet is used. And that's where a lot of the action is these days. Uh, just this past weekend, um, we had a threat to the University of Michigan, where somebody threatened online to shoot up the campus uh, on Monday with an automatic weapon. Um, we have seen um, uh, you know, people call in bomb threats and other kinds of things. And it's really what the FBI and U.S. attorney's offices do best. They were able to neutralize that threat very quickly because there's FBI offices in Detroit and in the, the location where this threat originated in New Jersey, they were able to get somebody there, use subpoena power to track down who sent it, go right to that person's door and, and track it down. So, um, and in those cases, there is the ability to prosecute uh, those kinds of threats. When I was uh, the U.S. attorney, and Joyce, I'm sure you did this too, we actually prosecuted people um, because... Even if they didn't intend to follow through with it, if they intended to communicate a threat and it was reasonable to expect that that threat would be taken seriously, you expend a lot of law enforcement resources and you create a lot of fear in a community. And so it's important as a matter of deterrence to prosecute those crimes. So that's within DOJ's statutory authority. But more importantly, maybe, is the U.S. Attorney's convening power. And so, as you said, the Attorney General has the authority to direct U.S. attorneys to lead priorities. And the Attorney General will typically be judicious. You can't send the U.S. attorneys out to do this for every issue under the sun. But every now and then when something is very important, we'll ask all U.S. attorneys to convene their state, local, tribal partners and say, this is a priority. I'm sure it is for you too. And we want to be a resource and we want to help you. So for example, one of the things we did, Joyce, when we had these convenings in the past, and we were also experiencing threats was we would bring in somebody from the state attorney general's office to provide training for all the local prosecutor's offices about how you charge these. And, you know, there are many really little prosecutor's offices with one or two prosecutors in some of the more rural areas of Michigan who haven't had much experience with these kinds of cases. And so you can bring in somebody from the attorney general's office or one of the counties with a much bigger population and special specialization to do the training on how to bring one of these cases in state court, talking about how to bring together the resources of the state and the federal government. What capabilities does the FBI have to help? ATF would often offer offer up their bomb dogs if there was a serious bomb threat to go sweep the school and give them the all clear so they could go back to school. So that coordination is critical. Critically important, And Josh Hawley absolutely knows better. And shame on him for trying to use this as yet another wedge issue to try to keep his tribe in line.
3: You know, it's really true because this transcends politics, right? I mean, no county sheriff wants his or her school board to erupt in, into violence. Nobody wants to see that happen at a meeting. And I think the attorney general sent a strong message about setting priorities, about DOJ not being willing to tolerate this behavior. And I think Senator Hawley and and people who want to abuse this issue the way that he does are now on notice that DOJ is not here for the politics, that they're here to protect people. So it seems like it was important and will bear a lot of fruit. But, you know, Jill, politics does rear its ugly head in all things these days. We're nine months into the administration. It's been slow going, getting Biden appointees in place, whether that's U.S. attorneys, where it has been particularly slow, ambassadors or other officials who have to be presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed. Will the lack of presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed U.S. attorneys impact the progress that Merrick Garland wants to make on this issue?
0: Unfortunately, Joyce, I think that this could have a negative impact When the attorney general issues an order like this, he should be able to count on every single U.S. attorney in the country to carry it out. And this is a nonpartisan issue. It is not a free speech issue. It is a threat of violence. It's threats that shouldn't be allowed. And unfortunately, because there are so many holdover Republican U.S. attorneys, career assistant U.S. attorneys who are acting as the attorney general, it's not clear that he can count on them to fully engage with their local partners to get this done. And although people believe that the Biden administration has been slow in uh, appointments, it isn't actually true. When I looked at the data, I was surprised to find that although Presidents Obama and Bush had 239 and 240 confirmed by August 1st of their first year. Uh, Trump only had 89 and Biden has 88 at the same period of time. So I think it's not for any particular failure of the Biden administration to get confirmations. It's just a whole combination of things. And it is an important issue. And I hope that the Senate will make time to confirm Nominate, And the administration will put forward the names of nominees so that we can get this problem solved and count on the U.S. attorneys to fulfill their obligations.
3: You know, it's really important for these government offices to have where a political appointee is the person that heads an office for those people to get in place because they have a lot of authority that someone who's just in an acting capacity doesn't happen. I mean, they can hire a lot more easily than an acting can. They're much more in touch with the leadership in terms of setting priorities and carrying them through Barb. I know you were confirmed after I was. I was in the first five group of Obama U.S. attorneys. We were confirmed in August of that first full year that he was in office. But it does take time, and my Trump successor wasn't appointed until almost a year into the administration. So do you think this is going to hurt Merrick Garland's ability to take care of this problem, which has become really pressing? Or do you think it'll be possible for the U.S. attorneys' offices to go ahead and, and make progress?
2: Yeah, I'll say two things. One is, I I was confirmed on Christmas Eve of 2009. That's right. I forgot that. How (laughs) could I forget? Yeah, and I, I was among the first maybe 30, so first third. And I remember a number of our colleagues didn't come on until, uh, you know, earlier, even mid of 2010. So I don't think Biden is really behind in any way. But I will say it's a real missed opportunity because, although certainly the people who are serving and acting as U.S. attorneys are going to do all that they can to enforce the law, and, and you know, most of the cases they handle are not political in any way, I do think that. Um having the Biden U.S. attorneys in place is an opportunity for Merrick Garland to say, I really want you to make certain things a priority. It's possible that, you know, the people who are there were the handpicked deputies of the U.S. attorneys appointed by President Trump. And so even though I'm sure they're going to act with integrity and do their jobs, they likely just have, uh, you know, a worldview where their priorities are things like, you know, immigration enforcement or marijuana enforcement or things like that. And I think it's useful to have U.S. attorneys who are going to be gung-ho about uh, these threats, for example, um, and not uh, taking the bait and listening to Josh Hawley and saying, well, this is a violation of free speech or something like that. So I think it's a missed opportunity. I think Merrick Garland will still be successful. I think we'll have have everybody on board I hope by early next year and, and they can carry out some of these things. But but in the meantime I do think it causes unnecessary delay. I'd like to see a higher priority placed on the prompt confirmation of US attorneys. You know, Barb, I don't think you're gonna be
3: on Senator Hawley's Christmas card list this <laughs> season. <laughs> um but but Kim Barb raises a valid point, right about being able to get things done more efficiently. There were reports earlier this week that a Republican group had actually formed that would promote having a, a cadre of folks who were ready to be inserted into these presidentially appointed, Senate confirmed positions. That in essence, there was a Republican group forming that would try to speed up the process in the next Republican administration. Do you think that that's a trend that we'll see? And if so, would Democrats? be up to that challenge?
1: Yeah, that's really hard to see. I mean, uh, hard to know. I think what we have seen, generally speaking, is tactically Republicans seem to be more deft than than Democrats have been on a lot of things. I remember, oh my goodness, this must have been four or five years ago uh, at a press conference with a bunch of um, uh, Democratic senators saying to them then, Hey, it's an election year. Are you making the Supreme Court an election year issue? And I remember, um, I won't say which senator it was, but it's a well-known one who uh, was one of the uh, candidates for the Democratic nomination for president in 2020, but really had a difficult time formulating uh, a, a response to that, which let me know no. They were not really focused on that. And let me tell you, Republicans were laser focused on that. When it comes to tactics and how to install people, how to focus the attention of voters, Republicans have been time and time again better at that. And I think they realize the urgency of this. And perhaps this is one area where Democrats were caught a little flat-footed, maybe not anticipating the level of uh, obstruction, frankly, that they might face from Republicans uh, and the need to really move Uh, expeditiously to get people in place and and to have a plan. Jill? Joyce, I know during the
0: campaign, it was not ever an issue, even though many people encouraged the uh, Biden team to make the judicial nominations and the Supreme Court a big issue. And I don't see any indication that it's going to be any different in 22 or 24. And that's too bad because, as Kim just noted, the Republicans have made this a real major rallying cry. Make sure you protect the Supreme Court. Get the judges who will abolish versus Wade. And they've done it. So we need to pay attention to that. And it's also true for states. Exactly. I mean, we the Democrats have not focused on electing governors and state legislatures, and now the redistricting is being done by Republican governors with Republican legislatures, and going to hurt the numbers of Democrats who are going to end up in the House and the Senate. Well, not the Senate, but maybe even in the Senate.
3: I think it's a fair criticism that Republicans have always been better at imposing discipline on their ranks. But the the nuance that I'm hearing you guys put on it is this notion that elections have impact, that when you fail to impose that sort of discipline and perceive that the consequences of failing to elect a president, maybe because there's opposition in some factions of of your party, is now facing the loss of Roe versus Wade, to take us full circle, that Republicans have historically done better than Democrats. And whether or not Democrats can play catch up even on these issues involving school violence seems to be somewhat open to question. Well, Kim, I've been using Headspace a lot lately and mostly, to be honest, because you guys have been so enthusiastic about it, but I sometimes have difficulty falling asleep or I'll even wake up in the middle of the night and need to go back to sleep. And I've been using one of their little features called Midnight Laundrette, which sounds a little bit silly and I felt awkward using it at first. But actually, it
1: drops me right back off to sleep. It's really great. Are are you using Headspace still? I am too. And I also use it to help my insomnia. And one thing that I found um, is that it's so effective as just a quick and easy way to meditate that uh, my husband, sometimes when I turn it on, um, I'll take my earphones that I usually use at night, and and then we'll listen together and we'll go through a guided meditation together. Uh, And he really enjoys it as well. What about you, Jill? It's so interesting you mentioned that because
0: the other night my husband came into the bedroom while I was meditating with Headspace, and he was fascinated and joined in. So it is terrific and i agree with with you joyce that it is one of the best ways to relax and get ready for bed after the news that you all worked up and get your blood pressure up i find it hard to turn my brain off and this really puts me into a different space so it it's terrific way of relaxing uh or just meditating in the middle of the day when you want to take a break and don't have time to really go for a walk or outside uh have you used it barbara
2: I I have and you know what I like about Headspace is it has a whole menu of different kinds of meditations that you can do as opposed to kind of what I always thought of as is what meditation was, which is I have to focus on my breathing. I think I've told you guys this before. I am terrible when I focus on my breathing. It has just the opposite effect of of calming me down i start getting worried about it that am i breathing too fast am i breathing too slow what if i stop breathing will i die if i stop breathing will i pass out and then revive myself so it's not it's not restful for me but they have others that i really like where you just um you know mindful walking and things that combine movement so i'm looking at the trees i'm looking at the sky i'm looking at the birds and in those things that can help you just sort of uh detach from the other things that might be on your mind so i like it for those kinds of things You know, I'm totally with Barb on this. I've had a
3: a yoga practice for more than a decade and and I do meditate, but I'm not one of those people who can focus on my breathing because I have all these questions as well. Like, you know, do I breathe properly or do I breathe wrong? And it's just not productive for me. And that's what I like about Headspace. It makes it really easy to build a life changing meditation practice with mindfulness that will work for you. Anytime, anywhere, to give you a daily dose of guided meditation in an easy-to-use app. In just 10
1: minutes, it really can change your life. Feeling overwhelmed? Having trouble falling asleep? Are your kids a little too wild? Headspace has a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Their approach can reduce stress, improve your sleep, boost your focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being and is one of the only mindfulness apps validated by clinical research. Headspace's benefits are even backed by 25 published studies, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Just go to headspace.com sisters. That's
3: headspace.com slash sisters for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. It's a good one. So head to headspace.com slash sisters or look for the link in our show notes.
1: I wanna take a moment to thank our wonderful listeners for always sending in such great questions. We really love this segment of the show. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw@politicon.com or tweet us using the hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get your question during the show, keep an eye out on Twitter. We often answer them there. So the first question we'll take today is from Judy in Fort Collins, Colorado. Because of current events, I've become aware of how little governance there is for how SCOTUS, the Supreme Court, operates and how checks and balances like those between the executive and legislative do not appear to exist for the SCOTUS. Am I correct? And if so, what can we do about it? Well, Judy, I I think I can answer this question. I think what you're trying to say, among other things is that um, ethical rules that apply to both people in the executive branch and also lawmakers in the legislative branch don't really apply to the Supreme Court in the same way. There are, for the judiciary, a set of ethical rules that are set out and enforced by something called the Judicial Conference, which basically sets out the policies for the judiciary. But by large measure, The justices of the Supreme Court are exempt. They're sort of on an honor system. They don't have to, for example, um, disclose if someone, if they hold stock, for example, in a company that comes before the court. Um, They don't have to, if they do decide to recuse themselves from a case, they don't have to say why. They don't have to say anything. And there has been a push. It's actually a bipartisan push. And I wrote about it in my column this week in the Boston Globe. You can uh, see it in the show notes. We'll include a link there about the fact that lawmakers like uh, Democrats like Sheldon Whitehouse and Elizabeth Warren and Republicans uh, like Lindsey Graham and John Kennedy have been pushing to impose greater transparency rules on the U.S. Supreme Court so that we know, for example, if someone who has donated a lot of money— or put a lot of money behind the confirmation to push the confirmation of a justice. If they come and argue before the court, we'll know it, we'll know how much money is spent. And then that will at the very least, uh, put some pressure on the justices to recruit, to recuse themselves. It would also um, impose more stringent requirements on financial disclosures that the justices themselves make. So there's a push for that. We'll see where it goes, but right now you're absolutely right. It's a different standard. So our next question is from Patty in Michigan. She asks, could you please explain codifying, especially especially as it relates to SB 8? Why isn't it SOP? Who wants to take that on?
3: I'll start. Patty, I think this is a really great question. It's important because it clarifies the distinction between the judicial branch and the legislative branch. Codifying means taking a rule and turning it into a law. And so the issue I think that you're flagging here is the Supreme Court decides Roe versus Wade more than 50 years ago, but Roe versus Wade is a judicial ruling. There's actually no law that was passed by Congress that makes the point that women have certain reproductive rights, that people have reproductive rights that are enforceable by virtue of statute. And that's the only reason that Texas is able to come along and pass an SB 8 and challenge the Supreme Court precedent. Of Roe versus Wade. If there was now a law that had been passed, you know, 52 years ago, the Roe versus Wade law, we would be in an entirely different setting. And so y- your final question, why isn't this standard operating procedure to turn Supreme Court rulings into laws, is of course a political issue involving political will and whether or not one has a functional Congress, which we don't seem to have these days. But we would be better off in this case, and in many cases, if Supreme Court rulings carried the force of law so that rights could be better protected.
0: Can I give a different example, which protecting our Democracy Act that has been led by Representative Schiff from Caliph, and that would codify all of the norms that have all governed in our country, but that were ignored during the Trump administration. So things like withdrawing from your businesses, turning over your tax returns, those were norms, but they weren't laws. And so this law puts into law those requirements so that they would be enforceable. And I think that's an important part of this answer as
1: well. And our last question is from Wendy. She writes, it seems like lawsuits against Trump, such as Summer Zervos' defamation case, drag on forever. Are these normal delays due to an overwhelmed court system? Or is Trump gaming the system by running the clock out? If the latter is the case, how can normal people have recourse? Who wants to take that on?
2: I'll take a stab at that, Kim. I think the correct answer is actually both. Um, I think, number one, litigation moves very slowly. I think people are often surprised at the pace of a civil case. Part of the reason is that criminal cases take priority because of the Speedy Trial Act. So judges have to uh, hear those cases, have those trials before they can look at civil cases. And so that causes things to slow down. But there's also this whole course of discovery where parties take depositions of each other and they exchange documents and they exchange interrogatories. Then they file motions to try to dismiss the case or uh, seek summary judgment. And so um, all of those things can take uh, quite a bit of time. But then I think we have an additional layer when Donald Trump is involved. He is known for being obstructive and litigious And so for all of those things that normal people understand are part of litigation, like sitting for a deposition or providing documents in response to subpoenas and other things, he drags his feet and he stalls and he requires courts to make him do those things before simply complying the way most parties do in litigation. So it's a slow process that is made slower by his refusal to play by the rules that most people play by.
1: Yeah, I I would just add that that is totally true as a former civil litigator, I think especially because we often see uh, criminal cases play out very publicly, that the public doesn't understand that civil cases can take a long, long time. There was a case when I practiced law that I handled, uh, that when I stopped practicing law, I passed it off to my colleagues at my law firm, and I went back um, maybe— eight or nine years later to have dinner with my former colleagues and the case was still going on. Like sometimes these things can take a really long time. And I don't think that most people realize that. Well, thank you all for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Weinbanks, Joyce Vance, Barb McQuaid, and me, Kimberly Atkins-Store. Don't forget to send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using Hashtag Sisters-in-Law. Don't forget to go to politicon.com slash merch for all our new amazing t-shirts hoodies bags buttons water bottles and more don't forget the pins and the pins the pins jill's pins and this week's sponsors are magic spoon third love and headspace you can find their links in the show notes please support them as they really help make the show happen To keep up with us every week, follow Hashtag Sisters In Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your pods, and please give us a five-star review. We love to read your comments. See you next week with another episode, Hashtag Sisters In Law. I really want this hoodie. Like, I have some travel ahead, and I'm always cold on planes, so I really like this. It looks soft. It looks fleecy on the inside, too. I love the hoodie. Yeah. And also a water bottle, because I'm dehydrated, as y'all can probably hear. Yeah, I, I, the- you know,
2: I like the, the stickers. You know, um, I try to <laughs> uh, put stickers on my laptop like the young people do. You know, I'm, I'm back in the school environment, and the young people have stickers. I don't want to look like, you know, the, the old-timey, stiffy, st- stuffy uh, lawyer. So um, the sisters-in-law sticker for my laptop, I think, is, uh, is a go. You want to be hip, Barb, but don't say hip. Yeah. Yeah, hip is not hip anymore. (laughs) Mm. First on my list
0: is the pin, of course. But the second one is going to be a hat or a t-shirt that I can wear all the time so that I can identify with this wonderful show and be very proud when people say, oh, sisters-in-law. And- recognize us on the street. Like you know that's kim i keep going aware. back
3: to the water bottle that you like and i love that it's in pink i can't wait to get my hands on that the big pink sisters-in-law letters
1: yeah i really like that too i like the color contrast with the blue that's really or i'm sorry the aubergine aubergine it looks really good i'm Is it really called aubergine? It is called aubergine.
2: Isn't that so pretentious? It's purple and pink. We're not not usually that girly,
3: but it's great. We should call
2: it pretentious (laughs) aubergine. Come on, it's French for
3: eggplant. Well, it's all so cool, and everybody
0: needs. Everybody needs the tote bag so they can carry all the other merch <laughs> good in it. Point. That's a good way to package I'm gonna it. I'm going to put my knitting get in the tote, tote bag. bag. Oh, that's good. That yeah.
2: That Won't my really family be thrilled when they get uh, and find nothing but sisters-in-law merch under the Christmas tree this holiday season? You
3: know, there are supply <laughs> chain delays that are going to make it tough to get your kids the usual video games and crap like that for Christmas. We're going to go all sisters-in-law in our house. <laughs> Problem solved.
2: They'll be so happy.